Hi, I'm Mia Quinn. Welcome to Sustainably Speaking. We're talking today with a true steward of the ocean, Doug Woodring. He's the founder and director of the Ocean Recovery Alliance. Also, he's one of the top 50 watermen of the world, and he's been inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. We're also joined by my special guest co-host for the day, my colleague, Stu Harris. Hi, Doug. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mia. How are you today? I'm great. And Stu, let me introduce you as well. Hi, Mia. Nice to be here. Well, it's great to have both of you. And I know you two have worked together before, so we're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. Doug, tell us a bit about yourself and about the Ocean Recovery Alliance and a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I'm uh, American, but I've lived in Asia almost 30 years working here and uh, set up Ocean Recovery Alliance as an NGO uh, more than 12 years ago uh, to protect a lot of different aspects of the ocean. When I first graduated from uh, college, I went to Japan and uh, my first job there was, was one of the biggest fishing companies in the world as the first foreigner um, trading seafood. And I, I learned a lot about the scale and the scope of what the global fishing industry does and takes out of the water. And I said to myself, hmm, someday when I grow up, I'd love to slow that down a bit or protect it. And that's how it all sort of started. But it was always really about plastic pollution. Being in Asia, I can see a lot more trash in the water than you get in the West. And I do a lot of water sports. I'm a competitive outrigger paddler and a diver and when you're in the water a lot you see a lot of things on the top and under the water that that the normal person doesn't necessarily recognize and that's what really uh, motivated me to do all of this tell us about sort of some, some of your major initiatives or what you're working on like what's your what are you focused on when we started 12 years ago you know ocean plastic was not a big topic at all globally. We set, established the Plastic Disclosure Project. What it is is a methodology, probably the first in the world at the time, to allow companies and institutions to undertake a plastic footprint analysis and just get a baseline understanding of what they use, what they recover, uh, how much recycled content they have, do they have alternatives. And that really gives you a good lens into your own operations. and. Um, that's viable today because if you don't measure and understand your baseline of use and recovery, then it's very hard to know what to circulate. We also created an app that allows you to report uh, trash hotspots anywhere in the world's waters uh, called Global Alert. And it allows the community to be engaged. We don't need a lot of people, but a couple people per watershed or one mile length of creek is already enough to get good data in that watershed that, hey, there's a problem with a lot of stuff, either on the riverbank or flowing down the river. What kind of reports were you getting from that app? Well, it's mostly visual and metrics uh, that people can tell the estimation of size based on football fields. If you do regular reporting over a season, then you can start to see trends where uh, the plastic and the waste might be flowing out of that spot. And then it's up to stakeholders who do have some power in that community to do something. So it's, pr it's pretty, pretty simple, but very, very effective. Because when you visually see all these points on a map, 
uh, you know, it's much easier to have a discussion with people. Doug, one of the, um, one of the first times we met, uh, one of the ways that we came together was your engagement with the business community. And I just, I remember that you have in a very different way of engaging between an environmental group and, and business. Um, so kind of where did that come from? Where did that originate? You know, why do you take a different approach uh, to engaging the business community and, and how has that been successful? Yeah, well, I didn't plan it that way, but I think that's one of my assets. I did go to business school and I have two master's degree, one in international relations and international economics. And I came from a business background and entrepreneur background. In fact, really what we're doing with Ocean Recovery Alliance is environmental entrepreneurship. Uh, every program that we start is actually a mini startup. I'm not a scientist or a ecologist. And a lot of the community that grew up studying the ocean and animals and bacteria uh, come from a different background than plastic and policy. And that's more where I come from. So blending the two discussions between policymakers, uh, brands, users, producers, and the environmentalists and the sports people, for that matter, like had some skill, I guess, in translating between groups, whether it's to eighth grade kids, to professors and policymakers and brands. So, Doug, you're a big water sports athlete. I love the water. That's where I get my energy from here in, in the D.C. area. I was spending time out on Chesapeake Bay. It recharges me. It inspires me. Uh, you know, is that where you draw your inspiration? Is that where you kind of get that drive to come up with these creative ideas? It certainly is in many ways. When you're in the ocean and you're swimming and you, you come right up to a plastic bag, the first thing you think of is that is a shark. So running these races and having that shark feeling happen too often is one inspiration. The other thing is when you race outrigger canoes or kayaks, you get plastic on your rudder. And if you have to jump off in the boat to get clear of the rudder in a race, that's also not very nice. When you're diving and you're in crystal clear water and there's suspended material, you know, that all really brings the motivation. So you've been working in this for a long time. How do we keep plastic out of the waterways in the first place? Well, I think there's two things. Um, one is um, obviously better waste management and I should say material recovery because we all want to avoid waste to landfill. But most countries do not have pickup. They do not have the trucks. They don't have the money. They don't have the processing. So that material in general gets lost to the environment. Mostly what we're trying to do is prevention on the land side. But going back to Global Alert, if you don't fix the waterways, even just on the surface layer. You don't have trust in that community at all that you are doing something as a government or a jurisdiction for the community to keep things clean. So a perfect example is we did this in Cambodia, cleaned the river, it was always dirty. And the monk, it was across from a pagoda, the monk just stood out there with a big smile on his face looking at the water. And he said, now I can finally tell people that the water's clear, that if they put their trash in the water, they will have bad karma. And that means a lot in the Buddhist world. And it couldn't be done before because they simply did not trust him. 
because there was a thick layer of slow moving trash in that water 24 seven for the last 20 years. So the dynamics of just bringing trust into that system are huge because now you can talk to the community who's now working together actually to manage these booms and nets. Now you can talk to them about other issues. Let's work on recycling now that we know what's in the water. It just drives a lot of trust and pride, which doesn't exist in much of the world, I think. And so that's um, really important visually and psychologically to start with our waters. I think in the U.S., a lot of our listeners right now are probably like, what? Where in the where in the world is this not happening, that garbage and the recycling pickups aren't happening? 90% of the rest of the world. And there's all kinds of reasons why this doesn't exist. Philippines, Indonesia. Indonesia has 15,000 islands. Philippines has 7,000. You can't just drive a garbage truck across island, 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 island. There's no bridges. There's no access. They're mostly small communities. And the problem is you can get one foot of rain in 25 minutes in these, some of these places. Even one inch is already enough to float lightweight plastic into a gutter and a stream and a river. When you don't have the proper waste management, it's a big task for all of us just to manage it and control it so it doesn't get lost to the outdoors. Do I want to ask you, because I want to hear from your perspective as well, how do we keep plastic out of the ocean, out of our waterways? I think Doug said it really well. We've got to build trust at the local level. And I think that's the most challenging part of this problem. And that's the thing that's just so inspiring about what you figured out. You look at problems differently than others in the environmental community because you've got a business background, an international background, you've experienced, you've lived in parts of the world where they do have these challenges, where many of us aren't used to seeing that on a day-to-day basis, but you've taken it a step further, building trust at the local level. And building trust at the local level then builds up the community and then trust builds on top of that. And it just builds this momentum toward a better environment. The question I wanted to ask you, Doug, there's talk right now, there are negotiations going on for a global agreement to address plastic pollution. And so this is an issue that the UN is bringing governments together to try to solve. And yet we know we've got to figure out how to build trust at the local level. So how do we get those two things to work together? National governments coming together to negotiate this legally binding agreement and the monk being able to say to his community, the river is clean, you'll have bad karma if you pollute it. How do those two things come together? Yeah, that's a great question. And you've spurred on about eight answers that I have to blend together. So I wanted to start with the monk in Cambodia, because what happened after we cleaned the river, not only did the monk say that you will have bad karma, but literally within a week, the local government put a fine on putting your garbage bag on the river side of the road. If we hadn't cleaned the river, they never would have initiated this fine and this incentive for the community. That's one thing. Two of our villages that we work with created their own environmental committees, and they've now self-imposed a waste charging fee into their village, which has never, ever happened because they never had waste removal. And they realized the benefit and get a truck to come. And now they're working as a team to at least get the stuff out of their waters, which is good for tourism and fishing. 
So when you build this trust and this pride, you can get this momentum happening. One of the things on the trust side that's really lacking globally, and you hear it in the press all the time, is that recycling does not work. And that is a super bad story for everyone. Because if you remove recycling as one of the main, very large options for scaled correction for plastic, if you just believe it doesn't work, all of the other alternatives out there are quite punitive, meaning they're for taxes, bans, alternatives, reuse. Those are fine, but they are not at all going to cover the inventory and the material that is out there today being used, which needs to be recycled. So we cannot shoot recycling in the foot. And if we can't tell the story as a city, as a government, as a municipality, as the waste recycling hauler, to show people really how it works and why it's working and how it could work better if you sorted better, then we have a super challenge. So that's one of the trust nodes we have to fix. What we promote is just to sort wet and dry. I believe the whole globe would benefit in, in one day with sorting by wet and dry and probably recover two to four times the amount of material we recover today. Okay, what do you mean by wet and dry? Wet and dry just means take your plastic, paper, metal, glass and get it in one bag that is not filled with anything wet and food related. What this does, it makes it so much easier to sort so if you strip out the plastic from the organics, you have a much easier way to use organics and therefore you don't have to send them to the landfill and they don't have to make methane. That's 23 times the savings on versus CO2. And you have much, much better plastic that is now much more easy to put into its seven families and sort. So we're trying to do this at the village level and the smaller community level. And I believe this is the kind of stuff that needs to be brought into the UN plastic treaty discussions. We don't need big machines that go into a big city and do 2,000 tons a day. We need millions of smaller machines that can clean, grind, shred, densify material so it can get from a smaller community into the infrastructure of the next bigger aggregator and the next bigger market where it can then be processed properly and sold and used as a recyclant. And this comes also to the need for trade. If we don't have trade, all countries in the world would have to create their own circular economies domestically. And almost no one has the capacity and the money and the time to do that. It's a huge amount of replication. And I think that's not what we're aiming for in reducing plastic pollution globally. So we need to be able to move that material to the countries that can respectably and properly handle it in a justified and verified manner. I think the trade angle is really important. And, and maybe just to simplify it a little bit, there are small countries, and I know I visited a small African country a few years ago where they were collecting plastic bottles to be recycled. And they didn't have a recycling center on the island, but they had a big machine that would shred those plastic bottles into little bits. They would put those into a canvas bag, and then they would ship it to a country in Europe that would turn it into recycled plastic. But the issue is that if countries aren't allowed to send their shredded up plastic 
to someone who has the capacity, that big machine that can turn it into the little recycled plastic resin pellets, then it ends up getting burned or landfilled or in the environment or what have you. And, and so I know you've done a lot of thinking on this. I know you've done a lot of work on this. Maybe if you could just at a high level talk about the importance of that trade of plastic, of those used plastics, and how it can help small countries move their material to a hub where it can then get recycled. So the challenge we face with plastic pollution, a lot of people think it's all about technology. You need more machines, you need equipment, you need trucks. I would argue that um, at least 70% of it is uh, psychological and sociological change, which goes back to this building trust and pride and sorting in a different way, wet and dry. With a change in psychology and proper management and bringing pride and trust to the local communities, getting the feedstock from the global south to the north who needs it. And so there's a whole interesting dynamic here that could could really work um, if we use that treaty to start thinking about a change in collection and sorting. Because if we can do that, then we can get our hands on the feedstock. I have to say, I wasn't, you know, the last thing I would have expected for this conversation to end up around and the, the main theme is trust. Yeah, I see it and hear it all the time. So, Doug, as we as we look ahead, and and this is a huge problem to solve. It, it's such a big problem to solve. You've got the UN involved and local communities involved. What's the hope? What's that inspiration going forward? And from your experience in bringing business and the environmental community and governments together, is there hope? Is there an opportunity for us to succeed? Uh, yeah, definitely. If you think about it, all trash and waste is left someone's hand before it became garbage. So everything is one hand away from the solution. And of course, people don't mean to litter. They just don't have the facilities and the capacities in the city or town to put that stuff in the right place and then have it get used because there's not a demand, there's no value. If we fix those things, we could have huge gains. And all the countries of the UN are now woken up to this big problem. If we bring in the right solutions and programs and really build a circular economy that's global, not a repetitive, replicated, forced one in a domestic scenario for every country, then we could really make a big difference. I think this treaty can help galvanize that thinking, but we have to allow it to happen. Again, trade and global circularity needs to really, truly be part of the solution set here. Oftentimes, at the heart of the issue and everyone's core position is pretty much the same. You know, we all want to eliminate plastic waste in the environment. And so we're all agreed on the objective, but we have very different perspectives from where we sit, if we're industry, environmental group, academia, government, and we all have different solutions. How do we break that down? The world is not perfect. There's no, almost no way you can go from zero to 100, from badness to perfect goodness in one move. And the problem that a lot of issues have is that the groups who want to have a perfect world from day one often shoot innovations in the foot and basically stop the ability for innovation to even happen because they say, well, 
it's great that you have 10% benefit, but there's a 0.002% problem with this side effect happening. And we really have to think to ourselves, do we want to save the 10% or are we going to worry about the 0.002%? So that's the challenge is showing how that works. So you can't not do something because you're afraid of not having the perfect end result. You, you have to do this in stages and show people. And when you do that, then you can get the momentum to get onto the next stage. If we don't let those things happen and let the snowball start building when you push it over the hill and get momentum, you know, then we have a problem. So when we were speaking, I was speaking at a huge monk event once in Ladakh, India, and they introduced me um, as an activist. And I don't like that word because it feels like agitation and divisiveness. And I said, no, I'm an actionist. I just get programs started and show people how they can work, even if they're just small. And I think if you do that, whether you have government support or not, often you don't need it. Often the brands you know, don't need regulation to make that change. But you, you do it and you show that broader community that we just did this. And it actually works. People are happy. And now we can expand it. We can grow it to the rest of the county or the rest of the village or the neighboring location. And I think we need sort of more of that kind of thinking and um, try not to be 100% perfect right out of the gates. I think that's one of our biggest problems and challenges that we don't let that happen. Doug, it, it really sounds like something that I know my mom has told me as a, a former school teacher. We've got to meet people where they are. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. You're figuring out ways to meet people where they are and to encourage innovation. And as that develops, then we end up solving the problem at a pace that matches, you know, where a village, where a country is, rather than trying to make everyone fit to the same storyline. Yeah. And like I said, a lot of it is societal change of the, just the, the manner in which you do it, not necessarily a big machine and equipment. And showing that that can happen can make a huge difference in bringing those communities into a whole another frame of operations, if you will, in the way, in this case, the way that they collect and recover and use plastic. Doug, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to ask one last question. Is there what kind of our listeners, they're listening and they're like, dang, I want to get involved. What can they do? Well, that's a great question. We're always thinking about macro cross-border impact, not just my river, my creek. How do we do it? So if we're going to do it here, it can be done in Nigeria, it can be done in Iceland, it can be done in Brazil. All of our programs are replicable. We're always looking for good partners and trusted partners. I do want to just say global alert. It's like ways for traffic. Anyone in the world can use it. But we don't have the access to every watershed manager. So it's not as if there's some magic alert. We'll go to the Minister of Tourism or Minister of Sewage in any given place. It's up to the local community to put two and two together and say, we're reporting on this. Here's our map. You can look at it, Mr. Rotary Club, Mr. University, Mr. Government, Mrs. NGO, corporate. Help us. We're, we're going to report on it, but let's work together to manage that. So we always need funding. I don't like asking for money, but you know we always need it because uh, how long is a piece of string? The more resources we have, the more we can 
scale some of these things and show replicability into new villages and new towns and other countries. And I think that's what the world needs is showcasing jurisdictional change, not just little pilot programs, not just little tests in a small place. You need to show that an entire community, even if it's just 500 people or 200, they all did this change and, and it works. Now let's do it in 1,000 people village. Now let's do it in the 5,000 person town. And we need more case studies like that, you know, not just for plastic, but, but other things too. And so all hands on deck and any resources like that, corporate, corporate engagement. If you have 100,000 staff around the world in 80 cities, imagine what you could do in the watersheds in the location where all your employees are around the world. So all of these are easy for people to use, actually, if they want to. Doug, Stu, thank you so much for your time, for being here. We are all in different time zones right now. Some of us are just getting up and some of us are about to go to sleep. But thanks, everyone, for joining us. This was a great discussion and hope to continue it soon. Thanks for having me. Doug, that was awesome. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the questions. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us. Are there any topics that you'd like to bring up on the next show? Let us know. I look forward to sustainably speaking with you soon.